Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. Getting our message out requires dramatic steps, and this week we've got a great one. A human billboard spelling out Fukushima is here, set to take place in San Francisco on October 19. I'll be speaking with John Bertucci, one of the organizers, and he'll share not only how they're doing it in Northern California, but how any group can do it anywhere on Earth that has a nuclear issue. That would be you. Wouldn't it be great if we could coordinate this message for a single day around the globe? Learn more about how to do it in that interview coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, July 30, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. A long-awaited study on congenital birth defects by the World Health Organization, WHO, and the Ministry of Health in Iraq is expected to be very extensive in nature, according to them. But according to activists, this proposed study is seriously flawed. That's because the report will not examine the link between the prevalence of birth defects and the use of depleted uranium, DU, munitions used during the war and occupation in Iraq. This an admission by the World Health Organization itself. DU munitions vaporize on contact, generating radioactive dust that is easily inhaled into the lungs. According to WHO, establishing a link between the prevalence of congenital birth defects and exposure to DU would require further research by competent agencies or institutions, which I guess WHO is admitting they are not. According to a report published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, the genetic damage and cancer rates in Fallujah is worse than that seen among survivors of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In another study, uranium and other contaminants were found in hair from the parents of children with congenital anomalies in Fallujah. To not look into uranium, quote, is an important omission, said Keith Baverstock, a former health and radiation advisor to the WHO. Kazuko Ito, Secretary General of Human Rights Now, a Tokyo-based international human rights organization, said, DU is one of the possible causes even if it has not yet been proved as the very cause of the problem. Who does not provide a reasonable explanation why it is fair to opt out of this issue? Why is who opting out? That would be because of the unholy alliance that they created with the International Atomic Energy Agency back in 1959, when they signed away their right to be an independent agency and put anything that they write about nuclear under the aegis of IAEA, to either approve or disapprove. And since the International Atomic Energy Agency has, as part of its mission statement, the promotion of nuclear, nothing that WHO has said since that time about nuclear trying to assuage our fears can be trusted. There will be more on the WHO IAEA story coming up in the next few weeks on Nuclear Hot Seat. Meanwhile, we have discovered an informational link that deserves to be examined closely. In the story about the proposed report from WHO, it stated that neural tube 
defects, remember that phrase, neural tube defects in Fallujah and Al-Ramadi are about 3.2 times higher than that estimated for the global population. Why is that phrase important? If you listened to Nuclear Hot Seat last week, episode number 110, we reported that Washington state authorities were baffled after an investigation into the spike in a rare birth defect in neighboring counties has failed to uncover a common cause. Of course, one of those counties houses the Hanford site, one of the ten most polluted places on Earth, and the other two counties were adjacent to it. Now, the story went on to speak of anencephaly, as being the birth defect, saying that it occurs between the third and fourth weeks of pregnancy. During that time, and here we have that phrase, the neural tube is supposed to close and fold over to form the brain and spinal cord of the fetus. This process fails to occur in anencephalic pregnancies, resulting in the absence of a large portion of the brain, skull, and scalp. So Washington State, adjacent to Hanford, has a spike in neural tube deformities, and so do the infants in Fallujah. There's something here. I challenge mainstream media to pick up this story and run with it. In Canada, we've had a success because a plan to ship 16 radioactive steam generators through the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River to recycle them in Sweden has been canceled after delays caused by public opposition. This is a success for the Idle No More movement. Aho! The president of Bruce Power, Duncan Hawthorne, said the plans have been put on hold to allow further discussion with First Nations, Métis, and other groups. The move has been strongly opposed by Aboriginal groups, the Bloc Québécois, the NDP, and a number of community and environmental organizations over the past two years. Emma Louis of the Council of Canadians said that there are many concerns, but the big one is the possible threat to the Great Lakes if something went wrong with the shipment. I'll say. Kanawaki Mohawk Council spokesman Joe Delarande said the change in plans shows that public pressure can keep companies like Bruce Power in check. He said, you can't keep this kind of thing secret and try to sneak it through. James Skongak, a spokesmodel for Bruce Power, said the company didn't actually bow to pressure. Of course not! You just did that out of the goodness of your hearts. Not. In India, a collective of political parties and citizens' organizations has announced that it would hold protests in Chennai on August 5th to demand the closure of the Kudankalam nuclear power plant. One head of the protest pointed out, if the protests had been violent, a solution might have been reached, but they have protested peacefully for 700 days. Will the government pay heed only if the protest is violent? One hopes not. Safe journey to you all. In Japan, it's all TEPCO all the time, and none of it is good. First off, Fukushima Unit 3 is still blowing off steam the second time in two days, and the third time in a week that steam has been observed coming from the fifth floor of the wrecked building housing the remains of Reactor 3. Where there's smoke, there's fire, and where there's steam, there's enough heat to boil water. The problem is, what's the source of that heat? Might it be the melted core, the corium, heating up? 
no one is willing to say. Last week, TEPCO did acknowledge for the first time that its Fukushima Daiichi facility was leaking contaminated groundwater into the ocean, a problem many experts, such as Arne Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, had suspected since shortly after the crisis began more than two years ago. The highly radioactive water contains 2.35 billion becquerels of cesium per liter. Ouch. During a press conference, TEPCO President Naome Hirose said the company delayed acknowledging the facility was leaking contaminated water because it did not want to worry the public until it was certain there was a problem. They just didn't want us to worry our pretty little heads about it when they were the big, strong nuclear experts and they'd take care of everything. Not. That's 27 months of them not protecting people or the environment or the public from a reasonable, actionable panic. It was 27 months of them protecting their own sorry posteriors. Representatives of Japan's National Fishermen's Federation visited TEPCO headquarters on July 25th to hand in a letter of protest over the leakage of radioactive water into the sea. In part, the letter read, We are exasperated at the development, which is an act of treason to all fish industry workers and to all members of the public in Japan. The head of the Nuclear Reform Monitoring Committee, sounds good, doesn't it? We'll explain later. The head of this committee, Dale Klein, who is a former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Nuclear Insider Alert, said he was disappointed and frustrated by TEPCO's handling of the disclosure of the leaks. Klein said, These actions indicate that you do not know what you're doing and that you do not have a plan, and you're not doing all you can do to protect the environment and people. Deputy Chairman of the Nuclear Reform Monitoring Committee, Hey, lady! Barbara Judge, who is neither a lady nor a judge, just a faux Elizabethan nuclear shill, says she was disappointed and distressed over the company's lack of disclosure. She said, I hope there will be lessons learned. This, by the way, is a phrase lifted from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Guidelines following Fukushima. I hope there will be lessons learned from the mishandling of this issue and the next time an issue arises, which inevitably it will because decommissioning is such a difficult and complicated process, that the public will be immediately informed about the situation and what TEPCO is planning to do in order to remedy it. There is so much wrong with that statement, including the fact that there's no way to decommission Fukushima because it's not a functioning nuclear facility. Company President Hirose apologized for the delay and said that he and TEPCO Executive Vice President Zango Aziwa would take a 10% salary cut for one month over the matter. Are they serious? That's just the company getting to keep the money, and they'll probably funnel it back to him as a bonus sometime down the line. Hey, Hirose, how about giving up your salary from the 27 months that Fukushima's been polluting the Pacific Ocean with radioactivity? How about using that money to buy all the fish your hard-working fishermen caught and cannot sell, and then eating it, and serving it in TEPCO's executive dining room to all your executives? And then why don't you take the leftover money 
and give it to the mothers and children in Fukushima so they can evacuate and get the medical treatment they deserve. If this situation seems to make no sense, you're right, it doesn't. Or at least it didn't, until Nuclear Hot Seat's Facebook correspondent, Mark Thormelin, sorted it out. He wrote, This is a huge scam. Caught blatantly lying and covering up again, TEPCO is trying to appear as if it is being reprimanded by an outside agency when all of the people doing the reprimanding are actually members of TEPCO's own Nuclear Reform Operating Committee. It's all part of a public relations and propaganda strategy where TEPCO acknowledges its lies and apologizes yet again while highly radioactive water continues to pour into the Pacific Ocean and Fukushima Daiichi Reactor Number 3 steams. Now to the United States, where workers have removed the nuclear fuel from both units at San Onofre and notified federal regulators, a step that effectively terminates Southern California Edison's license to operate the nuclear power facility. Both SCE and San Diego Gas and Electric Company, which owns 20% of the facility, have filed a lawsuit against Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, which manufactured the steam generators that exhibited premature wear. Both utilities have informed investors to expect losses if state regulators hold them partly responsible for San Onofre's costs. But the utilities have also asked to recover their costs from utility consumers. It's like the producers. They make more money off of a failed decommissioning process than off running the sucker in the first place. And as for them being partly responsible for San Onofre's costs, in 2004, one of their executives pointed out that they were not in compliance with their license and they were going to have to go through a relicensing process. And they ignored him. Partly responsible? Oh, guys, only the lawyers are going to win in this one. In New York, bad news from Indian Point which is less than 25 miles from Midtown Manhattan. Owner Energy announced on Tuesday, July 23rd, that a former supervisor who worked at the Indian Point nuclear power plant for 29 years had been arrested for deliberately falsifying critical safety records and lying to federal regulators last year. The utility said that Daniel Wilson, age 57, who was in charge of ensuring compliance in critical safety areas, falsified tests and records related to the quality of fuel in backup tanks for the emergency diesel generators installed at the nuclear power facility. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission could fine the licensee, meaning Energy, $140,000 per day that the nuclear power plant operated while not in compliance with safety regulations. According to the complaint, this happened at Indian Point for months and months without resolution. So the amount of money could be really significant and really hurt them. However, of course, no such penalty has been imposed by the federal regulators at this time. I wonder what we could do to change that. This story, by the way, comes from Lucas Hickson and Informable.com. We will have a link to the entire story up on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, on the blog page. Portions of an airport in Miami were evacuated after depleted uranium was discovered early Thursday, July 25th. Firefighters cleared a 150-foot area of the Opelaka Executive Airport in South Florida after a 55-gallon drum was discovered to contain exposed, depleted uranium. 
Depleted uranium, or DU, is a radioactive product used in military munitions and fission bombs. Then what's it doing at a Florida airport? Two stories out of South Carolina. The first, the Department of Energy's Savannah River site may be cutting 600 jobs from its workforce as a result of a proposed $100 million federal budget cut. Recently, full-time employees at SRS, as it's called, were forced to reduce their hours to a 32-hour work week. If budget cuts continue, the belief is that the issue may rise again with more layoff notices to follow. Joe Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project said, This is a terrible development. SRS is one of the most contaminated places on Earth, with decades more of cleanup needed to contain the poisons. Cutting workers doesn't remove waste. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, July 23rd, Aiken, South Carolina, became the first community to reject a new nuclear waste dump. Woohoo! Good move, guys. Boosters for projects at the Department of Energy's Savannah River site, SRS, in South Carolina, began clamoring for the federal government to bring nuclear waste to the state. Nuclear industry insiders favored SRS because they hoped it would eventually justify the reprocessing of spent fuel to remove weapons-usable plutonium. Mm-mm-mm. South Carolinians know about the backlog of high-level nuclear waste at SRS. They know about the treated waste sitting at SRS, waiting for a permanent site to move to. They know to be skeptical about the interim nature of any future consolidated storage facilities, in other words, the ability to move the junk off the site. So on July 23rd, the SRS Citizen Advisory Board voted 17-6 to to reject the idea that the Savannah River site is a suitable location for a consolidated storage facility, stating, Future generations of South Carolinians and Georgians will not be well served by having the Savannah River site become an interim storage site for commercial nuclear waste and for what will be an undetermined length of time. I'm willing to bet that Lou Zeller and Beverly Kerr of the Blue Ridge Environmental Defense League had something to do with this story. All involved, well done. Now it's time for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission report. A fire broke out in the turbine building at Ameren's Callaway Energy Center in Fulton, Missouri, which is a nuclear reactor. According to Barry Cox, Senior Director of Nuclear Operations at Callaway, no personnel were hurt and no radioactivity was released above normal operating limits. No radioactivity released above normal operating limits. There should be no operating limits. According to the Beer 7 report, the biological effects of ionizing radiation, the government's own report, there is no level of radiation below which it is safe to be exposed. Zero. Zip. There should be nothing. So you're saying it was under the limits. There should be no limits. Cox went on to say, it's uncertain when the facility can return to service. Now, here's some spin speak for you. The operators of the plant, Ameren, said in a statement, an unusual event, the NRC's phrase for a level one accident at a nuclear power plant, one of four, they said, an unusual event is the least significant emergency category designated by the commission. Least significant emergency? 
That's an oxymoron. That's like army intelligence. It's a contradiction in terms. There is no insignificant emergency. Emergency means significant. Unbelievable. They get away with this. I'm willing to bet that no reporters in their local community caught this and called them on it. And if there are any reporters listening to this, go ahead, go for it. Call them out on this languaging. See what you get. And send a link to the results to me. Continuing with the Doc report, in Jinnah, New York, there was an automatic reactor trip from full power, otherwise known as a scram. Get out of there. This happened on July 24th. The reactor tripped, whoops, due to a reactor protection system actuation signal from a turbine trip, whoops, which was caused by a generator trip, whoops, times three. The facility will remain in Mode 3 hot standby until the cause of the triple trips is determined. Wow, man, what a trip. A group devoted to creating alternative energy jobs in central Appalachia is building a first for West Virginia's southern coal fields region. A set of rooftop solar panels assembled by unemployed and underemployed coal miners and contractors. The 40 by 15 foot solar array signals to an area long reliant on mining that there can be life beyond coal, to which we add life beyond nuclear reactors as well. The Jobs Project teamed up in 2010 with a solar energy company. Mountain View Solar and Wind of Berkeley Springs, to develop a privately funded job training program. The 12 trainees are earning $45 an hour for three days of work, while some local laborers are earning $10 an hour helping out. Mountain View owner Mike McKechnie is also buying all his electrical supplies from local businesses. McKechnie says, We are not funded by any state organization. We're doing this as a business because we want to grow the solar infrastructure and industry. This is a great model for San Onofre. There are a couple of links to the Jobs Project and also Mountain View Solar and Wind. We will have them up on the website. And just when you thought I may have forgotten, here is the nuclear hot seat. Numbnuts of the week! Alaska Airlines has decided to replace uniforms worn by its 3,200 flight attendants nationwide after employees reported a growing number of mysterious illnesses. The union is convinced that rashes, headaches, hair loss, and respiratory problems are linked to the uniforms flight attendants have been wearing since, listen to the date, January of 2011. According to Jeffrey Peterson, president of Alaska Airlines Flight Attendants Union, We did not have these issues before we transitioned to this new flight attendant uniform. Union documentation shows that nearly 700 flight attendants, one-fourth of the entire workforce, reported some form of illness since donning the new uniform in January of 2011. The airline ordered extensive tests on the uniforms, but according to a spokesperson, we haven't found anything. Okay, guys, let's get real and do the math. Rashes, headaches, hair loss, respiratory problems, all of these are symptoms that are consistent with exposure to radiation. Furthermore, they got their new uniforms in January of 2011, and what happened in March of 2011, children? That's right, 
Fukushima Daiichi, with its radiation releases and the radiation plume that made it all the way to the west coast of the United States, even though the U.S. government wasn't making any mention of it. But here it came with increased radiation levels and radioactive fleas, meaning particles, and they got into the jet stream, and they swirled around at high altitude, and whoops, here comes Alaska Airlines with flight routes on the west coast of the United States that are absolutely consistent with the thickest part of the plume. Perhaps the radiation levels were so high, it fried the airline's critical thinking. Check it out, guys. Radiation exposure, all those symptoms, Fukushima, put the pieces together and get back to us. But until then, Alaska Airlines wins the nuclear hot seat. Numbnuts of the week! Let's move on to some better information, and that's in this week's interview. Imagine, what would it be like if, in a single day, with a single action, we could get the word out around the world that the impact of Fukushima exists everywhere and none of us is immune to its consequences? Well, there's a great new tactic that has been not only proposed, but is in the process of being implemented by an anti-nuclear group in the San Francisco area. That's the creation of a human billboard on a beach involving thousands of people using their bodies to spell out the phrase, Fukushima is here. Helicopter goes overhead, snaps the image. Well, why don't I let you hear more about it from one of the organizers? I spoke with John Bertucci, who is a veteran producer, director, and editor of independent films, and executive director of the Petaluma, California Community Access Cable Channel, and one of the organizers of the Fukushima is Here campaign in San Francisco. John Bertucci, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, thank you for having me. Where did the idea come from for this human billboard on a beach? Ah, well, I might need to start with Fukushima Response. That's a work group that we organized here in Sonoma County uh, early last year. Uh, We got on the web around May, and we started doing a number of events last summer. We hosted Chieko Shina, Yastel Yamada, Carol Woolman, showed films, and did a lot of outreach, tabling, and informational events. This year, we started looking at the anniversary, and we were planning to do a um, seminar at Santa Rosa Junior College, but when we got wind of the major one in New York that Helen Caldicott was organizing, we canceled and I went to that event. It was an exceptional event. Mm -hmm. But then we started bouncing ideas around for what we could do this year, um, and somebody suggested doing a human mural, uh, which have been pretty successful in San Francisco. They did one for Dump Citizens United and Impeach and that sort of thing. Who's coordinating this, and how are the pieces being pulled together for it? Well, we made the decision in January to put all our eggs in this basket and try to get a major public information event that would break the sound barrier, the media sound barrier. The lack of coverage of this um, crisis is quite disheartening and disturbing. And we've been working for over two years to, to try to bring it to people's attention and lobby for elected officials to do something. When we set up the idea to do a human mural, we tapped into somebody who's been doing them in San Francisco. And he's already reserved the beach for us, reserved the helicopter, and we're starting now this summer with uh, recruitment and promotion. 
what is it going to take for you to be able to pull this off? People power, money power, what is required? People power and networking to get the word out. If other groups support this, they have their own network lists that they can send a, a notice, an announcement to. We need about 20 people on the beach at 7 a.m. to mark out the letters and be ready. And then at 11 o'clock, we hope to assemble about 2,000 people to spell the words, Fukushima is here. The helicopter will go by, get the shot, and then we're pretty much done. Although it's a great opportunity for handing out flyers and just and talking with other people and broadening our own network. It sounds like this would be a place to really have an in-gathering perhaps for some of the younger people. We talk often down here in Southern California about how gray our movement happens to be. So this sounds like something that would be fun for um, an outreach to people who may not have been involved before. We hope so. And getting the youth involved is, is critical because their ch our children are going to have to be ready for their children because this uh, this slow-motion catastrophe is going to take a couple of generations to really play out. Certainly it's playing out already on many different levels. How is it determined that you wanted to do the phrase, Fukushima is here? That took a while to for us to, you know, we bounced it around. We work in consensus. So we bounced around a number of possibilities. One of the parameters was we didn't want too many letters because the more people would be needed. Uh, we were operating with Fukushima response now. Um, we, you know, we started last year when Senator Wyden made his call for an international effort. So that was kind of our rallying cry. It didn't pan out. It, uh, the blockade between the industry, the war machine, uh, they've got the news covered and they've made, managed to downplay the danger. Uh, we just need to bring it to people's attention and hopefully that will stimulate its own um, momentum. The more people who know, the more people who talk. It's a difficult subject to talk about. <laughs> it's so intractable. What can we do? And uh, it's it's existential. It could be uh, extinction we're talking about. So it's a, it's a hard one to open up the conversation. A lot of people don't want to go there. Denial, scientific complexity make it difficult. But just getting the word Fukushima into people's consciousness as something they need to know about starts the process, we think. So we want to anchor that word and really make it a day of recognition that Fukushima is here in many different ways. And uh, if you want to know more, we'll be, we'll be there to tell you. Once you spell out Fukushima is here on the beach with all the human bodies and the picture or video is taken from the helicopter, what is going to happen to those pictures or that video if you have both? We will certainly um, use our the website, fukushimaishere.info, for posting the climactic image and probably make a postcard of it, which will circulate. We had the hope that we could stimulate other events of the same nature around the globe, make it a global day, but that hasn't picked up traction yet, and it, it's, it's work. We don't have the energy to organize different events, but if we had a, a ground crew, say, in Hawaii or Australia, two places we've already contact, been in contact with people who are interested. If that ground crew was ready to, to do the work, we'd certainly be available to help guide it. And those pictures would also go into the same uh, website and circulated on Facebook and a number of other venues. It's such an extraordinary visual. What came to me when I first saw this is, wouldn't it be great if every place where there is a nuclear issue around the globe, something like this 
could be put together so that people understand that Fukushima really is everywhere. I agree. It would be a dream come true if we could stimulate that kind of viral concentrated energy. Because there is a spiritual element to this, too. I think when bodies get together to make a message for the sky, that's close to a prayer in my book. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what we need to do is we need to empower people to confront this. It's so dire and heavy that most people don't want to go there. You can't do it alone. A lot of us tried. That's what brought Fukushima response together. There's about a dozen of us working regularly. We meet twice a month. And for the first six or nine months, we were all kind of going crazy in our little lonely corner because we were wondering, does anybody else see this? Does it mean the same thing to them? Working together to tackle this problem, to try to understand it and spread the word, is a heavy burden. And so the the fact of working as a group is it forms a support group. You reinforce each other. It's healthy. To what extent are you in contact with the other activist groups in Northern California? Quite a bit on Facebook. I post on three Facebook pages regularly. Fukushima is here is organized by Fukushima Response. We have a website, FukushimaResponse.org. It's being revamped, so in a month or so it should be much stronger. But it was it has a number of um, documents relating to our first year and our actions. Uh, we have two Facebook pages. We um, inspired a group in the Bay Area in Berkeley to create the Fukushima Response Bay Area, and they work. They do hazmatting actions around uh, the East Bay. They were in Sproul Plaza last Friday. It's a vigil in support of the Friday night uh, vigils in Japan. So we have Fukushima's here. We have Fukushima Response. I also post a lot on Rainbow Warriors, a European Facebook page that is uh, very active. I think that may be where I first got contact with you because that's another one of the sites that I am on. It's it's remarkable. I, I, I get a lot of material there. I bring it back, post it on our Facebook. It's uh, cross-pollinating. I like to say that Facebook has become my equivalent of AP or UPI. It's my wire service to get all of the stories so that I have them for the podcast. Oh, it's great. And the, and the work you're doing is great, too. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything that we can do specifically to support you in bringing this forward? Well, the website, fukushimaishere.info, is set up so that you can pledge your participation. That helps us gauge how many people are coming and creates uh, an email list that we can remind and circulate updates. So that's an important step. If you're in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, and October 19th is the day you'd like to go to the beach and save the world as best we can, please go to the website and um, pledge your participation. And that actually, that's beginning to really happen. We've got four or five in the last two days, and we're going to be going into a pretty um, concentrated uh, recruitment campaign in the next few months. I know several activists on the East Coast who are going, dang, I want to get on a plane and be there. And I just said to them, what's wrong with Indian Point and doing one on the East Coast? Absolutely. And, you know, you don't need 2,000 people. All you really need is a high-angle photograph, and you could have 15 people with one letter each on their head, and you've made your message. It's the action. It's the collective action on the, on the same day that I think is important. And then you post it on Cafe Press so that people can have their T-shirts and their mugs and their baseball caps. <laughs> And everything else made to order, and we can be walking billboards for the concept because, in truth, for all of us, ever since that disaster began over two years ago, Fukushima is right here in front of all of us all the time. Absolutely. 
and we're not getting any help from the industry or the governments or the, the press. Uh, they seem to be uh, anchored on that idea of restarting the ones they've got, but then that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> that certainly is, and I look forward to engaging in it with you. John, are there any thoughts you'd like to leave us with? You know, there's so much going wrong in the world right now. There, it, you know, it could be a perfect storm or a meltdown. The power structure that got us into this mess, which I've euphemistically called the war machine, uh, you know, it's been operating for decades. And atomic power, nuclear power, is is more than just the electricity those plants generate. It's it's geopolitics. It's uh, being able to throw your weight around the globe. And that whole structure is hinged. That's one of the reasons why Fukushima is being downplayed, because if we start to untangle what happened there and see how crazy the whole idea is, I think it would end in a day. As they said in New York, quite often a number of speakers, we need a Marshall Plan for uh, an energy revolution. We need to shift, just like we did in World War II, shift all of our assets to generating clean energy. But we've built ourselves, dug ourselves into a pretty deep hole with nuclear energy that... Uh, Right now, the best bet is to face it and start to mitigate the issues. What I'm telling people mostly now is uh, prepare your children for their children. Excuse me, say that again, prepare your children for? Their children, because the real effects of this catastrophe are going to be shown in the future generations. Japan is going to suffer massively immediately, already is, but uh, the contamination of the planet, you know, we're a closed system. We have one ocean, and Fukushima's been leaking into that ocean every day since the accident happened. Early this month, it spiked uh, enormously, which is quite troubling because that's the other shoe. Everybody talked about, oh, it's, you know, we're cooling it, we're having too much trouble with all the water, but the cores left the containment vessels two years ago, mm -hmm. and they're, they're acting up right now. They're getting restless. There's criticalities. I understand, under, under, underground, and it's, um, uh, it's intractable. I would say visit the website, fukushimaishere.info, and sign up for the San Francisco mural if you're in the Bay Area. If you're not in the Bay Area and you want to make this a global day of recognition, contact us at contact at fukushimaishere.info, and we'll help you. We have a, a, a page dedicated on our website for how to organize such an event. The real payoff is the photo and the, the collective energy that can be generated in such an event. Well, I know what my Christmas cards are going to look like this year. <laughs> John, obviously you are doing some great work up there. I haven't known about your organization before this, but I do now, and I'll make certain that Nuclear Hot Seat gets sent directly to your page every week when I do post. Wonderful, and I'll make sure that this little interview gets posted on all my Facebooks, etc. <laughs> Terrific. John Bertucci, thank you so much for what you're doing and especially for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're welcome. You can't say it enough. Saikido Hantai. Saikido Hantai means shut them down. That was John Bertucci, one of the organizers of the Fukushima Is Here campaign. Groups anywhere where there's a nuclear issue, which is everywhere, can join in and make this a global action to help you out we will have the links that John mentioned up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Click on the blog page. Now on to the U.S. nuclear accident you most likely have never heard about. It's the worst nuclear reactor accident in U.S. history. Even worse, it was completely 
and intentionally hidden from the public for over 20 years. This is a replay of a nuclear hot seat interview with Daniel Hirsch, a lecturer on nuclear policy at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and president of Committee to Bridge the Gap, a man who has been intimately involved with revealing the cover-up and breaking the story of the Santa Susana Field Lab. First of all, just give us a little bit of background, how you and your students at UCLA first became aware that there was a nuclear accident that it seems nobody had ever heard about. There had been a long report in the mid-1970s by Dorothy Boberg and Irving Lyon for Another Mother for Peace, looking at nuclear Los Angeles. And in that long report, there was about a page or so about the Santa Susana facility and the mention that there had been some kind of an accident, but that they had been unable to get the records pursuant to Public Records Act requests. So I had my students go into an annex of the UCLA Engineering Library and try to find these missing records because the man who had founded the Atomics International Facility, what we now call the Santa Susana Facility, Chauncey Starr, after the meltdown in 59, the partial meltdown, and after a second accident in the 60s, uh, went to UCLA to become Dean of Engineering and apparently brought with him large numbers of the technical reports by the Atomics International Facility and put them in the engineering library in a back annex. We requested the records and indeed found, uh, one of my students comes to me, or one of the students comes to me and says, look at what we found. There was, uh, it was called Metallurgical Aspects of SRE Fuel Element Damage Episode. Very boring topic. But they opened up these fold-out photographs and the photographs uh, were of melted nuclear fuel. There would be a label saying undamaged fuel, another label saying radial cracks, another one saying longitudinal cracks, and then a, a label that said melted blob. Very complex. That's a very technical term. And at that point, we quickly understood that there had been a partial meltdown of a reactor in Los Angeles that had never been made publicly known. The Atomic Energy Commission and the company that operated the facility didn't even tell the press that there had been anything that had gone wrong at the site for five weeks. And they issued a press release embargo for Saturday morning papers, one of the rules of trying to bury a story. And the caption of it, that press release said, parted fuel element observed at Atomics International, no safety concern. It wasn't a parted element. It was melted. It wasn't a single element. A third of the fuel at the reactor experienced melting. It certainly was unsafe. This was one of the worst nuclear accidents to date. They went on to say that there had been no release of radioactivity to the environment, and at the very moment that the press release was issued, they had been venting radioactive gases into the atmosphere for, for weeks. And there wasn't so, a containment building there, was it? It was just an industrial shell. That's right. Um, you don't have the containment structure, that dome that you associate with San Onofre, for example. It was simply a typical metal-thin walled building and beyond that, the reactor itself was designed so that you actually had to vent the radioactive gases from inside the reactor into the atmosphere because the pressure would build up otherwise. So it was really an extraordinary accident. And, um, about a year earlier, Edward R. Murrow, the famous television news broadcaster, had been brought out by the Atomic Energy Commission to do almost a promo piece for nuclear power when the reactor started up and temporarily provided electricity to the Southern Cal Edison grid so that the town of Moore Park could get lit up for uh, the television special. 
And then a year and a half later, the reactor had this partial meltdown, and they, of course, never told Edward or Merle he might want to come back for a follow-up. This is more than 50 years ago. And the extraordinary thing is after two supposed cleanups by the Department of Energy and its contractor, uh, now Boeing, in which um, they said that they had cleaned up all the contamination, the U.S. EPA in the last few months has found substantial amounts of cesium-137 and strontium-90, two very important radionuclides, at the area where the meltdown had occurred. What I had read is that they said that the levels were in places up to 100 to 1,000 times. They were a little vague here. It sounded like higher than background or higher than normal. Yeah, they had contamination as high as 1,000 times background, and that is also 1,000 times the cleanup level the Department of Energy has agreed to for the site. So those are pretty high levels. Uh, it's 196 picocuries per gram, and we normally see background at about 0.2. So that's about 1,000 times higher. Pretty remarkable. What are the current plans to clean up the site, and how successful do you think this cleanup will be? I'm afraid it's completely up in the air. In December of 2010, the Department of Energy and NASA, which owns part of the property and contaminated it with all sorts of chemicals from the rocket test, both of them signed legally binding agreements with the California Department of Toxic Substances Control to clean up their mess to background. That means any contamination that they created that they could find, they would clean up. It was a precedent-setting agreement. People had worked for decades to achieve it. It was uh, pushed by the Schwarzenegger administration and uh, finally signed in its last weeks in office. But since Jerry Brown has come into the governor's office, Ironically, a Democrat replacing a Republican, a Democrat who, when he was governor before, had been an active opponent of licensing the Diablo Canyon reactor, had actually intervened to prevent it. But the new Jerry Brown is trying very hard to prove he's not the old Jerry Brown. He's very close to Boeing's lobbyists. Several of those lobbyists are former aides to Brown when he was governor before and major contributors. And ever since Brown has come into office, the uh, cleanup has been placed in jeopardy. So the biggest risk at the moment is that NASA has been taking steps that they assure people do not violate the agreement, that they are committed to the agreement, but have caused many people in the community to have questions as to whether or not NASA is going to live up to its agreement. If NASA breaks out, DOE may well do the same. How worried should local homeowners, people in the community, be about their proximity to this site? First of all, worry does no good. It actually adds to your health risk rather than reduces it. Secondly, the, we don't have good answers to the fundamental question. People who lived in the area in the 50s and 60s, who lived close to the site, may well have received exposures from the partial meltdown in 1959 or the 1964 accident or the... 30,000 rocket tests, some of which used exotic and pretty toxic materials. They may have been exposed by the years and years of burning illegally radioactive and, and chemically toxic materials in open burn pits where that smoke would then fall out in the area around. But around 1990, the community, with our help, was able to get the Department of Energy facility shut down the nuclear work really remarkable accomplishment. I believe it's the first time that um, a community has been able to shut down an unsafe DOE nuclear facility. And then the rocket testing finally ended a few years ago. So 
the greatest exposures were likely in the past. The issue is, is there some residual contamination off-site? The answer is almost certainly that there's something, but the answer, question is, is it much? And how does it compare to the exposure you would get by living deeper into the smog zone of the Southern California Air Basin or living near a freeway exit where um, asbestos from brake pads or lead from when we used to have leaded gasoline or living near the Elsa Gunner refinery. I mean, we don't have a pristine environment, unfortunately. And so, uh, yes, rocketine contaminated the, the area, its own site, and some contamination off-site. We don't know very much how much, but uh, th there's no smoking gun that indicates that there's something huge that should make someone more worried than they might be if they lived near uh, a refinery or Lockheed facility. Uh, each of these uh, industrial entities in our society put people at some degree of risk. So how feasible would a complete cleanup be for the site? It's really fairly simple. The U.S. EPA has been tasked with doing radiation measurements at the site. And any place that they find that is contaminated, Farm Energy is supposed to clean up. And the cleanup is pretty primitive. It means digging up the contaminated bit of soil, putting it into a truck or a train, and shipping it to a disposal site. There is, of course, nothing actually that you can call cleanup. You're basically moving contamination from one place to another, but you're moving it from a populated area where it's out in the uh, environment and can readily spread to a facility that is designed at least to retard its migration and that has a much smaller number of people in the region. It's not a great solution. It's uh, you know, the old Watergate line, it's uh, once it, the toothpaste gets out of the tube, it's very hard to put it back in. These companies and these agencies were immensely irresponsible in dumping all of that contamination into the soil and the groundwater. You can clean it up, you can dig it up, you can transport it to a waste facility, and that's what would be done. But we would have been vastly better off had these uh, powerful agencies and companies behaved ethically and responsibly, and they didn't. What? can we do, especially those of us living in proximity, to push for a better action or a more complete action regarding Santa Susana? People can contact Senator Boxer and Senator Feinstein immediately. They're very troubled to hear that the Obama administration may be waffling on its commitment to clean up the site and ask the senators who are instrumental in getting those agreements to force the agencies to live up to their commitments. That would be very helpful. You can just go online to their uh, websites and probably send in a uh, email or other kind of communication or call. The senators have some power to be able to force the agencies to not break their word. And how can we best support you in the invaluable work that you are doing on behalf of um, Nuclear Sanity? One can go to our website, which is simply www.committeetobridgethegap.org. That's committeetobridgethegap.org. You'll find all sorts of information about what we've been doing recently. There's a way to contact us to get on our email list and on our regular mailing list. We don't inundate you with material. You'll get something, um, a newsletter once or twice a year and uh, occasionally urgent action alerts. So that would be uh, a good way of getting involved. Dan, I want to thank you so much for being on Nuclear Hot Seat again. 
Dan Hirsch is a lecturer on nuclear policy at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and president of Committee to Bridge the Gap. Thank you so much for your information. Thank you. That was Daniel Hirsch, a lecturer on nuclear policy at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and president of Committee to Bridge the Gap. We'll have a radiation protection tip in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to keep bringing you the news we won't get anywhere else. Each week's anti-nuclear news, along with radiation protection tips, activist advisories, numbnuts of the week, the NRC duck report, and so much more. We really appreciate any support you can offer by way of a contribution to keep us going. You can go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down on the homepage and hit the donate button and follow the prompts on PayPal. Anything you can do to help, I appreciate it, and it will help you to keep getting all of this great content. Or perhaps you'd be able to offer some in-kind services, especially of the social media sort. If so, let me know by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com, and let's start a conversation. Here's the radiation protection tip, and we're going back to basics. It's been a while since I shared these, and I want to take you through the process on a weekly basis so you understand exactly how many things can be done to protect yourselves and your loved ones from the impact of radiation from any one of the sources that are out there. We should all have fresh potassium iodide tablets available at all times, not just in the medicine cabinet, but in our purses or wallets, and in our cars, because you never know where you'll be when a nuclear disaster strikes. In a nuclear reactor accident, the first radionuclides released include iodine-134 and iodine-137. If you are exposed to them, these radioisotopes make a beeline for your thyroid. If the gland absorbs either one of them, you have been set up for thyroid cancer, our fastest-growing cancer in the world, and it can show up in as soon as two to five years. Potassium iodide, taken at first report of an accident, will fill your thyroid with enough iodine that it will be able to ignore the radioactive isotopes. It's a first line of emergency defense. You can also take liquid iodine as a daily supplement, just one drop a day, and that will also keep your thyroid full up so you won't even need the potassium iodide pills. But be aware that this supplementation will only protect you against radioactive iodine-134 and 137. As for the other radionuclides released during an accident, other protective measures need to take place. I will be addressing these in the coming weeks. Be aware that I'm not presenting myself as a nutritional expert or as a medical practitioner, either certified or licensed. I'm simply an interested individual who did a lot of research and due diligence, and I'm passing this along as information only. Do what you will with it. Take what you need and leave the rest. And now my attorney is happy. Continuing my call out for a contact to John Stewart, The Daily Show, any of the staff, John Stewart needs a nuclear pundit, and that would be me. I'm looking for any contact into John's organization. I don't care how obscure. Let's just get the two of us together. We'll sit down. We'll have a nosh. We'll get all ethnic with each other. Send your leads to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. And feel free to share my search on your Facebook sites, Twitter, any place you've got, because one never knows where the information will come from. Here's the final thought. In today's interview, John Bertucci mentioned the importance of having a support group to help keep those of us who deal with nuclear issues in the full 
upright position. I heartily agree. I must admit that there have been times when covering all this information, looking the devil in the eye week after week, gets to be too much for me. That's when I want to break down, weep at what's happened, hurl something breakable against something hard or something hard against something breakable, none of which will do any lasting good. What I've learned to do instead is pick up the phone and talk with some of my friends within the anti-nuclear movement. If I can't reach anybody by phone, I'll email or post on Facebook. I can't stay in isolation. I must remain in the conversation. It's not that misery loves company. It's that this level of action and dedication requires community to keep all of us in good heart. That's what I try and do with this podcast. You get to cry on my shoulder. I cry on your shoulder. Then we find something to laugh about, and we keep going. So if it starts getting to be too much, don't let it get there. Don't isolate with all this crappy news. Reach out. Share. Get the emotions up and out in a way that does not harm you or any living thing, people or the environment. Then when you're ready, and only when you're ready, get back in. Know that by doing so, you are making a difference. And if you doubt that, remember, San Onofre is still shut down forever. (laughs) No, no, they can't take that away from me or us. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 30th, 2013. Materials for this week's program have been compiled from enenews.com, ipsnews.net, dailymail.co.uk, the CBC, asahi.com, Kyoto, rents.com, utsandiego.com, businessweek.com, informable.com, and the ever-reliable Lucas Hickson, rt.com, NBC6, South Florida, AikenStandard.com, FirehouseNews.com, FOE.com, Huffington Post, MothersForPeace.org, Hannah E. Weiss of Missouri University, the Perpetual Numbnuts at TEPCO, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, with a shout-out to Mark Thormelin for that wonderful analysis of TEPCO. Our archive, all 110 episodes and counting, is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. The blog page has got all kinds of enrichment materials, including links, pictures, videos, and a mini description of each week's content. Everything you could possibly want, or even not want, that will increase your understanding of nuclear issues. So, go to the site, click on the archives, scroll down on the blog page, click the different months, knock yourself out, go down the rabbit hole. And then when you come out, leave some comments there, on Facebook, I've got two nuclear hot seat pages, Come join us. Join the conversation. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. Could you tell? So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halady and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but hey guys, fair use. You have my permission to reuse any of this material as long as you include proper attribution, website, and email. To translate that, just credit Libby Halevi, nuclearhotseat.com, info at nuclearhotseat.com. Like I said, 
This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep.